Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Kabakuk. Kabakuk. That's how you say it in Hebrew. I've been practicing that all day. Kabakuk. <laughs> we say Habakkuk. So, but it's actually Kabakuk. Um, it's found near the end of your Old Testament, five books back, from the Italian prophet Malachi. And uh, you're going to, you know, as we, as we look at this, this study tonight, I, I called it uh, basically strong faith, perverted justice. <laughs> and it fits with everything that we see going on around us, all the um, injustice, you might say, that we see all around us in our communities and things like that that's going on. And uh, we're going to be looking over the next probably four or five weeks um, at this uh, book. And so while you're finding your place there, um, I just want to open up with a little illustration. You know, it's usually, as as I serve as a chaplain, usually it's at night, sometimes during the day, but usually at night you get that phone call and, you know, it's not good. You end up going out to either a crime scene or a death or something like that has passed and the usually the dispatch person always says well you know uh, chaplain converse we'd we'd love if you could come out and and just be with the family and just help them and i know there's nothing i'm going to be able to say or do that's going to fix their situation right so you're kind of working upstream it's it's hard and um you know, usually they end up um, when you're visiting there with the family, and sometimes it's after the event or where actually where the event happened or at the hospital or whatever. Inevitably, you get this asked ask this question from Christians, believers, non-believers, all alike. Um, why did God what, allow this to happen to my husband or my wife or my son or my daughter? Um, and you never have a satisfactory answer for them, unfortunately. You just don't in, in the time, in the moment. You can't just say, well, that's God's plan. You, know, you just can't say that, uh, even though in your heart, obviously, you know that to be true. Uh, and so as many times as I've done that, I've never completely walked away from a situation. Boy, I really nailed that one. I had gave them the answer, and they were just satisfied with it. Because they're dealing with loss, they're dealing with grief, they're dealing with all that stuff. And so when you look at the, the questions of life and death in this life, and you consider the problems of really the death sentence we're all facing in this generation, even, I believe, even the most fervent believer, the most mature believer, looks up at the heavens during that time and says, what? Why? Why? Why was this allowed to happen to me? Why was this allowed to happen at this point in my life? Why was this allowed to happen at my level? Why this? Why this? And it's a question that rings true, and it rings out throughout the centuries, really, through every generation. All of us ask it sooner or later. If you haven't asked the question yet, you will. I guarantee you will. Um, It's a question that does not really allow us to give an easy answer to. Um, 
as you look through the scriptures, the godliest believers sometimes wondered about the ways of God. They really have. If you look at Job, right? Righteous man. Uh, he never really got a complete answer. What can I expect? Um, and I don't think there is one single answer. As a matter of fact, when you look throughout the entire Bible, you see different answers at different times to different people when they're asking that question, why? We get one kind of answer in the book of Genesis, another kind of answer in the book of Job. Still another answer as you look through the Psalms, and as David cries out to heaven, why is this happening? Uh, Ecclesiastes, when we went through that book, we saw a totally different approach to that question, right? The Gospels presents us with who? With Christ, whose very coming alters the way we think about everything. And you follow the New Testament through, and even the book of Revelation shows us our Lord's final victory and the final defeat of evil. Um, And these aren't contradictions to that question, but they're just different perspectives, right? And we we all have different perspectives in life. Um, I think the, the real problem is just that human suffering is so vast, it's so enormous, that we have to have many different ways to look at it and think about it because one isn't sufficient. And so that's where this little book in the Old Testament comes from. And this is just going to kind of introduce us to the first really 11 verses tonight. But we want to look at this subject matter of strong faith, perverted justice. And uh, we're going to really look into this little book that was written just before the world (laughs) caved in for the people of Judah. I mean, it was just in disarray for them. And so you look there, it's it's one of the minor prophets. We know that. One commentator says, you know, uh, look for the white pages in your Bible, the ones you don't use, and you'll find these minor prophets. Because most people don't read through the minor prophets. They just don't. And Habakkuk is squeezed there between Nahum and Zephaniah. And it's, those are two other books that people rarely read. But I gave you a little handout there that shows you that the, 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 the prophets in the Old Testament were basically broken up into two groups, 17 prophetic books. And there's five that are called the major prophets. That's not because they were more important. <laughs> it's not because they were, you know, bigger men or had you know, more authority than the minor prophets. It's not like the major league and the minor league. Don't think of it that way. It basically is referring to the length of these books. Um, so the first five books, they're the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel are referred to as the major prophets. And then you had minor prophets. And you see them all listed there on the chart. And so they're, they're, they're not called that respective to their importance, but relative to their size, all right? In some Bibles, I have a couple Bibles, and I looked at how they're laid out here, and the five major prophets um, take up 191 pages, physical pages, in one of my Bibles. And then I looked at the minor prophets, and they take up only 61 pages. (laughs) So they're extremely shorter, and so we're talking about short books here. And I would encourage you, if you've never read through the Minor Prophets, it's an easy read. 
I mean, sometimes you get into kind of some heady stuff you don't understand, but I mean, it's an easy read as far as speed and going through it. It's, it's pretty quick to do that. And so you have major and you have minor prophets. And uh, we want to look at basically um, one of these minor prophets here tonight, Habakkuk. But I, I want you to understand the structure of these minor prophets because you kind of have to have a little background before we get into this. Um, all of the minor prophets were not given to the same people um, or were they directed to the same nation. And um, I was going to have a handout, maybe I'll have it next week, but I just didn't uh, get around to doing it. But um, there's basically areas description of the minor prophets. You have pre-exilic, you have exilic, and post-exilic. Exile, remember? Um, when they were, the, the children of Israel were taken into captivity into the land of, of Babylon. Um, pre-exilic prophets refer to those who were dealing with before that happened. Exilic was during their exile. Post-exilic is after their exile. And the, the exilic prophets were those that were written by the children of Israel to the children of Israel in the land of Babylon during their captivity. And, um, you know, when you, when you think about that, that was a pretty, pretty intense time. They're, they're in captivity, and yet God still raised up uh, men to give them a message from the Lord. Uh, the post-exilic prophets were written after all of that, all right? And um, they were all... They were all uh, written when Israel would have been delivered or at least come out of the captivity of Babylon. And so they were written to different, different people. And you can look it up how they're all broken down, but I'm just laying a groundwork here. But it's interesting, the book of Hosea and, and Amos were written to the nation of Israel. Uh, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, uh, what we're talking about tonight, were written to Judah. That's who they were written to, those people. To Assyria, there was the book of uh, Jonah and Nahum. And then to Edom, there was the book of Obadiah. And during the exile from Babylon, Daniel and Ezekiel. And then post-exile, after that, came, um, when they came out of the land, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, Malachi. And that was written to the city itself of, of Jerusalem. And so though these these... Prophets are called minor. There's nothing um, minor about their message. Nothing at all. Uh, He's writing about a topic that we all think about or we will think about eventually. And Habakkuk is unlike any of the other prophetic books, major or minor. And, And the reason that is is because in it, it records a dialogue between one man and God. That's what the book of Habakkuk is. They're going back and forth. Whereas Isaiah, you look at the, 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 the prophet Isaiah, it contains a message from God. Well, Habakkuk records a conversation with God. Okay? And so it's basically, um, you know, if you've ever felt like you had a couple of questions for God, I think it's Chris Rice that has a, a song out called um, uh, Questions in Heaven or whatever. And he goes through all these different questions that when you stop and you think, wow, yeah, that is a good question. I would like to ask God that question. You know, what is deja vu? You know, he keeps saying that over in the song. And I thought, that's interesting, you know. And, and so here, 
you have this prophet who is asking all these questions and expecting answers from his God. Howard Hendricks calls the book of Habakkuk, or he calls the man Habakkuk, the man with a question mark for a brain. He was just one of those guys that's just always asking questions. I mean, we've all met people like that, right? And in a way, it's, it, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it, it helps you in your studies when you begin to ask questions. If you just read through a book for the sake of reading through the book and you don't ask any questions, you're not going to understand what the book's about. But when you start to ask questions, then you start to do research. And so it's, it's a good thing to do. Well, here's a little bit of a background about the Habakkuk. The year is around 605 B.C., thereabouts. Can't be really. Good King Josiah died in 609 B.C. Remember, the numbers get smaller as you get closer to Christ. Um, the nation of Judah plundered headlong into basically a cesspool of corruption. And you see parallels with what Habakkuk was looking at with Judah and what we're looking at with our country. I mean, right across the board, you just see it. There was immorality, there was idolatry, and it had plagued them for so many generations. And basically, it seemed like these people were just bent on their own destruction. It's like they didn't care anymore. They just threw caution to the wind. And instead of edging toward the cliff, they seemed almost, they wanted just to go over it full speed. You know, just hit the, hit the pedal and let's go. And so it was a, it was a nation as if they had a, a death wish and they had no use for God at all. I mean, that kind of describes the core of our nation right now. That describes where we're at. And so here enters Habakkuk. Um, we don't know anything about this guy. Very little. Um, one commentator said, well, he may have been around 30 years old. He was kind of a contemporary of Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah. He probably would have been about 10, 15 years older than Daniel. Um, we just don't know a whole lot about him. And, uh, but when he saw it, and, and, and one, one article I read was kind of interesting. He said, you know, that's not necessarily saying he was nobody. That's just saying that, oh, Habakkuk? Everybody knew Habakkuk. <laughs> there was no need to give any information because everybody knew who he was in his day and age. Now we look at it and go, who was this guy, right? But when it was written, he was probably pretty well known. And, you know, we, we don't have to know where he was born or who his parents were or all that. But what we do know is that he was a faithful prophet of God. And that's really what matters, right, in the end. It doesn't matter who knows your name or how many degrees you have or whatever. It, it matters, are you faithful to the God that you serve? And so when he saw this horrible, terrible decline, this moral decline in Judah, he, he asked God, basically, do something. That's what he did. He just threw his hands up and said, God, you're going to do something about this. How did all this happen? And in his mind, he no doubt thought that God would raise up another good king. Someone who was going to really take this thing by the reins and take the people back in the right direction. 
Little did he know, <laughs> the answer to his prayer uh, was not another good king. Literally, did he know that God's answer to his prayer would come by the way of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. That's who God these people. And, you know, as you consider this whole situation of what's going on in this book, Billy Graham once said this. He says, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good statement. In other words, you know, uh, that is so true. That was a quote from probably 60 years ago. How more true is that today? Habakkuk, no doubt, lived in confusing times. He lived in times when wrong was right and right was wrong and everything was upside down. And you know what? So do we. So do we. And I don't know if this causes frustration for you, but it does me. When I look around or I watch the news, I mean, I get really uptight about things. And so I can understand how Habakkuk was dealing with this. So we want to look at this series, Strong Faith, Perverted Justice. And we just want to sit with Habakkuk for a while, a couple of weeks, and, and find faith that he had during his troubling time. Hopefully, we can apply it to our own place. Now, there's a couple things here. I, I put them there in a simple outline there on your uh, folder for you. But chapter 1 talks about faith tested. Chapter 2 talks about faith taught. And then chapter 3 talks about faith triumphant. Uh, you can look at it this way. Chapter. There's only three chapters. Each chapter is basically describing Habakkuk's journey, his personal journey with God. And the first one is an argument, chapter one. He, he's taking it to God. He's asking hard questions. And, you know, some people feel, oh, you don't have any right to ask God questions. I, I mean, I, I, th- I think it depends on your motivation. How are you asking the question? God's not afraid to answer your questions. He's not afraid for you to ask him questions. He's not afraid for you to challenge, right? God, do you really know what's going on? I mean, this is what's going on in chapter 1. Now, if you walk away from that and say, I know better than you, God, then, then you got a problem, right? But if you're just allowing your heart to cry out to God, why did this happen? This doesn't seem right, God. How is this right? Um, you know, that's, that's an argument that, that Habakkuk is making in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see the answer that God kind of provides for him. And then chapter 3, we see acceptance. And then you see what he's doing, what his action is in each, cha- in each chapter. Chapter 1, obviously, he's, he's asking questions, lots of questions. Chapter 2, we find him waiting for the Lord, praying. And along this, this journey that Habakkuk goes through with his God in these three chapters, he experiences a total change. Um, in this book, he moves from fear to faith. He moves from, you could say, burden to blessing, perplexity to praise, confusion to confidence, worry to worship. I mean, do you see how this can apply to us today? It's where God wants us. Um, 
J. Vern McGee says of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, it says he be, it begins with a question mark and it ends with an exclamation point. <laughs> and that is so true. In many ways, it's a very, very modern book and it raises questions that we all wrestle with each and every day. There's a lot of, of things um, going on in life and usually people are dealing with major major issues with the finance a relationship job whatever it might be health and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're saying why are you silent god why aren't you answering my prayer why aren't you acting where is my lord i mean we've all been there no doubt in our own lives but maybe we wouldn't put it exactly that way but when we're up against problems, when we're up against issues in our life for which there is no human solution, there is no satisfactory human answer, we go up to heaven and we cry out, why don't you do something? Because that's where we're supposed to look, right? That's not a bad thing to do. Now, some of these verses, as you read through this, this book in the next couple uh, weeks, um, you're going to see are actually quoted, even in a short little book, it's quoted in the New Testament. Um, Habakkuk 1.5, look at what it says there. It says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. That's quoted in Acts 13, verses 40 to 41. Or if you look over at chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous, look at what it says, shall what? Live by his faith. Right? Book of Romans. That's the whole theme of the book of Romans. Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11. That same verse is quoted there. Hebrews 10.38. Or if you look over at chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this is another uh, common one, though the fig should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, uh, the the produce of the olive fail, and the field yields no f- food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. In other words, everything's gone wrong. Look at what he says. Yet, what? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Rings true of what Paul said in Philippians 4.4, 4, right? Rejoice always, Philippians uh, 4.10 to 19. So when we look at this book, um, we want to read basically the first 11 verses uh, tonight. The first 11 verses tonight. And I want us to think about when God doesn't make sense. When, when God's plan doesn't make sense, according to us. So follow along as we read through this um, and remember, he's, he's asking, he's arguing, he's, he's kind of, in a way, ticked off at this point. So you can kind of hear it when, when we read through it. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, here comes his complaint, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. 
So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Sounds like our legal system. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth. God answers. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, tonight we're just going to kind of introduce this, but I want to kind of go over a couple things that was agitating, was irritating Habakkuk. You see there in verse 1 it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That word oracle can also be translated burden. All right? Masa is, is, is the word. It's used 57 times, and it's translated, I think, in the NIV um, oracle as it is in the ESV. Uh, some translate it burden. But as this book opens, you can sense, can't you, in the, in the first several verses there, he's kind of irritated, he's kind of agitated, this prophet. And there's three things that basically have him ticked off. First of all, the first issue that he's dealing with is unanswered prayer. And they're on the back of your, um, your outline there. Unanswered prayer. Three issues that haunted this, this prophet. He cries out in verse 2, how long, right, must I cry for help? How long? And he's, he's irritated because his cries, uh, he felt were not being heard. Have you ever prayed for something and you've just felt like <laughs> it's bouncing off the ceiling? <laughs> it's not going any further. I mean, even though you know in your theology, you know, God, understand God here. But in your spirit, you're just going, Man, I don't even know why I'm doing this. We've all been there. Um, that word, how long, those words how long are used, I thought, 65 times in the Bible. And it's usually expressing anxiety over God's delays in bringing justice. Uh, that is such, a, such a, a strong point that we need to understand um, because it's, it's something that, that God wants us to to understand, but sometimes we're not going to understand it even in the time that all this injustice is happening. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, all the way at the end of the Bible, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So this is a continued theme with people. And if you think, you know, right now, 
throughout the world, all the craziness that's going on in our own society and around the world, you have this pandemic, you have Black Lives Matter, you have you know, riots and you have murders going on, you have corruption at the very highest levels of government, you have sexual perversion going on, you have looting, you have robbing. All those things were the same things that were happening during Habakkuk's day. It's nothing new. It's nothing new at all. And as he looks around and he sees all this stuff going, he saw evil on every front. And so he cries out, how can you let this go on? How can you just, as God, just sit there and not do anything? And I think sooner or later we all stop and we all wonder about God's, what we would say, seemingly inactivity. Right? We're trying to live for him. We're, we're doing the right thing. We're making the right decisions. We're, we're being faithful. We're coming to church. We're praying. We're, we're giving of offerings. We're giving of our time, our talent, our treasure, all that stuff. And we're, we're looking up at God and saying, where are you? Why is this happening? Where is God when we need him? Um, this happens in real life. You know, we've all dealt with people who've had situations. Parents who are praying for their wayward son or their wayward daughter who was raised in church, went to Sunday school, knows the Bible. But you know what? When they left the home, they left it all behind. And for many years, the parents have been praying for that prodigal. Or maybe it's a wife that prays for her husband who left after 23 years of marriage for a younger woman. Seems utterly unreachable. And the marriage heads swiftly for divorce, but the wife continues to pray. Or maybe the, it's a husband who prays for his wife, who was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. Maybe she's only got six or seven months to live. And none of the doctor's treatments can stop the progressing tumors throughout her body. call on the elders of the church to go and they go and pray anoint with oil and she dies five months later. Or maybe it's a young person praying for deliverance from an overpowering temptation. A struggle that never seems to end. And it seems the more they pray for God to deliver them from their temptation the worse the temptation becomes. And so we cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 10.1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I mean, we know theologically God is with us, right? He hasn't forsaken us. We understand that. But sometimes life just beats us down to the point where I think we're entitled to ask, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Why do you not do something about this? So we see this, this unanswered prayer. We can all relate to that. We all understand that. But look at what he says in verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity or injustice? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. I mean, if that's not a true statement today, right? I mean, just watch. You see people just blatantly breaking the law. Nothing's done. 
Or maybe they'll arrest them, but you know what? In hours, they're back out. I read a thing of an arsonist up in, in Oregon. He started a fire a couple days ago. And they arrested him, cited him, let him go. He went back and he started another fire. I think this happened three or four times. It just doesn't seem right, right? And so it says here, that why is this going on? The law seems paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You know, the one thing we have to understand is when lawlessness prevails, no one, no one is safe. See, that's unfortunately what the mayor up in Portland is finding out, right? That's why he had to move. I mean, how sad is that? You're a mayor of a major city in the United States, and you're forced to flee your own home, your own apartment, because you're allowing lawlessness to run amok in your streets. It's, it's a very pressing issue. And you know what? We're, we're at a point, I really believe this in my heart of hearts, we're at a point in, our, in the history of our country where this next election is either going to make it or break it. And I know, I get it, eventually, you know what, the United States not mentioned in Bible prophecy, it's probably going to be eaten up by the EU or whatever. I get that. I don't think we're done yet. I just don't think we're done yet. I just have too much belief in our country to say, ah, you know what, just come back, Lord, and let's just throw a towel in. Let's give up. I don't believe that. I believe that, you know, there's so much greatness in our country that you can't just walk away from it. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of issues. But when you just turn tail and run and let lawlessness run amok, it affects everybody. Everybody. And so I think that, you know, believers personally have been quiet for too long. You know, I get it. We're not to go out and riot in the streets and picket and all that stuff. But I think we need to do our due diligence and we do need to stand up against the tide of lawlessness and injustice that is havocing, just running across us, over top of us. And, it, and it's time, I think, it's, it comes from the church. The church stands up and says, hey, wait a minute. No, we're, we're, this is not going to happen. No, I don't believe this. You know, do you understand what Black Lives Matter is. And educate someone. You know, get your information straight and then set them straight. And yeah, you're going to be held account for that. I, I, but you know what? To sit on your hands and say absolutely nothing because you don't, you don't want to be found out that you're... That's wrong. I'm sorry, it's just wrong. And I think God, the God, the very God who saves our soul from everlasting torment in hell and provides eternal security in heaven is perfectly capable of providing protection for us when we make that decision, just like he did in the New Testament with the disciples. When they said to them, you can't do this, what did they say? We're going to obey God, not man. Sorry. Let the consequences fall where they may. That's where we're at today. And to sit idly by is just not an option. I just don't believe that. 
I'm not saying you turn into some crazy maniac and go out and offend people, but I think that we have to do it smartly. We have to do it with information. We have to let people know that, okay, I'm not going to raise my fist in the air and declare allegiance to Black Lives Matters because you picked up my state and threw it in, in the street. You know, I, I'm going to stand up to you. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And so we need to be, you know, um, very, I think, careful about how we do this. But I think that we do need to pray for wisdom that God would give us that ability to, I was listening to one pastor and his church, I guess, hadn't closed at all back in Tennessee or whatever. And he, he just made the statement. He said, for, for those of you who are pastors and your churches are closed, you're spineless. You need to grow a spine and stand up. You serve God. You don't, I mean, he just went off, right? And I thought, okay. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not disparaging those churches that decided to stay closed or whatever. But sooner or later, you're going to have to say, wait a minute, is this right? Is this correct? You know, and, and I pray every week for God's protection on our congregation. You know, it's not that the virus isn't a real thing. It is a real thing. I don't want to catch the virus. But you know what? I mean, science tells me even if I did, I'd be okay. More than likely. Sure, I could die from it. You could die from it. I could die from getting hit by a bus. You know, I mean, you don't want to be careless. But at the same time, you don't want to be fearful. You don't want it to paralyze you to the point where you're not doing anything, including worshiping your God on a Sunday. I, I just, I mean, there's ways that you can do that smartly and, 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 and you know, be part of the fellowship. But I don't, I don't really understand a lot of the churches that are not opening up for fear of what may be said about them or, or whatever. But you see here this uncontrolled perversity. And, and that's really what, what happens. It's, it's just, it's just un, uncontrolled. I don't know how else to say it. It's something that, you know, justice is it, perverted, it says. And uh, we just need to be uh, reminded of that. And then thirdly, third issue that he was dealing with here, was an answer that was unexpected. Um, so Habakkuk faces his third issue when God gives him an answer that just kind of blows his mind. You know, this isn't the answer that Habakkuk was looking for, uh, nor did he want. Look at what it says. He kind of unloads his heart, and then in verse 5, God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. And then he says this, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Um, now, you just take that by itself. I'd be kind of excited if I was Habakkuk. Like, oh man, here it comes. God's going to get him. I mean, those words might lead Habakkuk to think that God is going to send this mighty spiritual awakening to Judah and they're going to repent and they're going to turn back to their God and, and this revival is just going to rid the nation of all the idolatry and all the sinful practices and bring their hearts back to God. That's, that's what Habakkuk's probably thinking at this time. Um, I've heard a lot of preachers use this, this verse, by the way, when they're talking about revival. 
um, a basis for praying for revival. You know, revival is something that God does. We don't need to beg God for revival. If God's going to revive our nation, he's going to revive our nation. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Um, I mean, we ought to be praying that God would open the spiritual eyes of unbelievers, that they would come to Christ. That's how revival is going to come. But that's not what this verse is about. God is going to send something, but it's not revival. It's not revival. In verse 6, look at what he says. He says, for behold, I am raising up the the Chaldeans or the the Babylonians. Um, That bitter or ruthless is the idea. And hasty nation, uh, impetuous people, you could say. And they just kind of go all over the place. And, and I think at this point, Habakkuk's eyes probably got, you know, like saucers and said, what? What are you going to do? Because he understood who he was talking about. He understood who the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were. I mean, everybody knew who they were. Uh, they were the most hated and most feared nation on the earth during this time. I mean, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, their armies plundered the nations all around them. No one could stand up against them. They were just so fierce. No one could defeat them. They were cruel. They were vicious. They just had a sick appetite for destruction. They weren't satisfied in just taking over a province or something. They had killed everybody in their sight. If they wanted a city, they took the city. If they wanted a province, they took the province. If they wanted a nation, they took that nation. Nobody could turn them down. It's hard for us to fully understand how the Jews felt about the Babylonians. And here they, it tells us they swept across the ancient Near East with cruelty that was unknown. I mean, if a, if a certain conquered city was considered uh, not completely submissive, what they would do is they would put a pile of skulls in the city plaza as a warning not to rebel against them. Um, when they would conquer a nation, they took the conquered king and they would poke his eyes out, causing him to go blind. They'd march the rulers off in chains, sometimes with hooks through their jaws. These were not good people. I mean, look at how God describes him. Ruthless, and impetuous. Uh, in verse 7, he describes him as dreaded and fearsome. Uh, a law unto themselves. It says they're swift as leopards, ravenous as wolves. They come down like eagles to devour. Uh, they gather prisoners their horses come from afar they fly like an eagle swift to devour they all come for violence it's not a not a good description of these people at the kings they scoff there's no respect at the rulers they laugh they laugh at every fortress oh that wall you put around your house that doesn't matter (laughs) take it down for they pile up the earth and they take it. I mean, it's just a, it's an overwhelming 
description. And then finally, in verse 11, it says, whose own might is their God. The point is, basically, that these are nasty people. (laughs) And God knows how bad they are. He didn't make a mistake here. It's not like he's, you know, raising up the little sisters of the poor here to judge Judah, right? I mean, he's he's bringing in the bad boys. He's going to raise up ISIS or Al-Qaeda to judge because you do not respect my law. Well, maybe you'll live under Sharia law for a while. Maybe you, you'll, you'll, you'll learn to respect my law then. That's not, that's not uh, fantasy. Do you understand that? That is not fantasy. When you have people who are running for the most powerful position really in the world, the President of the United States, and you have people who want that office, and when asked, they're saying, no, I'm bringing in Muslims in my cabinet. We're going to be made up of Muslims. That's kind of scary. I'm sure there's some good Muslims. You know, I'm not saying that all Muslims are bad. But I mean, to go to that extent, knowing that we're basically a Judeo-Christian nation, and yet you're going to overcorrect maybe some of the injustice that has gone on in our country by doing something like that. I mean, look at how it's working. You've got a, you got a couple there in Congress right now that are of that persuasion. Look at what they're doing. They hate our country. You know, so he's not calling on the Boy Scouts here to come in and do the job, all right? When God decided to judge Judah, he picks the meanest nation on the block to do the job for him. That's what he's doing. And Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, said, what? That made no sense to him. It wouldn't make any sense to us, would it? He couldn't believe what he had just heard. You know, you you think of different situations in the world. Uh, I remember reading that story of uh, Miriam Ibrahim, who was that um, 27-year-old medical doctor in Sudan. She was arrested, she was tried, she was convicted of apostasy and adultery. 27-year-old medical doctor. What was her crime? Supposedly converting from Islam to Christianity. That's what they charged her with. The fact of the matter was, was she was raised as a Christian. She didn't convert to anything. She was raised in a Christian home. She wasn't an apostate because you can't leave a religion you never joined in the first place. But they didn't want to hear that. They accused her of adultery because she had a child with her husband, a Christian from Sudan who immigrated to the United States. And they would say, well, what's wrong with that if that's her husband? Well, it's an adultery because she was really, it's, it's a charge of having sex with her own husband because they didn't recognize her marriage to a Christian. So because she was married to a Christian and she was being charged with apostasy, she was committing adultery because they didn't consider him to be her lawful wife. 
what happened? She was sentenced to death by hanging for apostasy, sentenced also to a hundred lashes for adultery. She was given a chance to, on the stand, to recant her Christian faith. And they said, hey, all you got to do is, you know, announce allegiance to Islam and you'll be, you'll be good. You can leave right here, right now. And time and time again, reports say the prosecutor badgered her to renounce Jesus. She refused each time. Finally, she said, I'm a Christian and I will remain a Christian. As a result of her faithful witness, she was not only kept in jail, but she was put in shackles. By the way, she was pregnant during all this as well. And the authorities in the prison would not even unchain her when she gave birth in prison. They kept her chained up. And through it all, she steadfastly refused to renounce the name of Christ. And it was only after millions of people protested she was allowed to leave the Sudan with her husband and two children and has entered the United States. I mean, what if God allows this for a purpose? I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, when I read about that kind of behavior by people who are supposed to be in government, who are supposed to care for their people and they're treating their people like that. I just get very angry. And yet, what if God allows this for a purpose? What if those things have to happen? Very often in the Bible, I think things have to get worse, right? Before they get better. I mean... You know, the question is, we ask ourselves, have we reached that point in America? I remember talking to, uh, when I was a youth pastor, talking to just a distraught set of parents. And they had a daughter who just went off the, the rails. And she was just bent on doing her own thing, her own way. She was immoral. She was just caught up in all that stuff. And I remember the father telling me one day, she's just going to have to hit rock bottom, I guess. There's nothing else we can do. Um, and that's when you pray that, you know what? God, whatever it takes, you unleash the power of, of, of heaven on that individual. And sometimes that includes those powers that may not be too heavenly will do whatever it takes to open the eyes of their heart so that light from heaven can come flooding in and they can come to Christ. I mean, we definitely need a change in our country. We need a turnaround. But I, I really believe it's almost like the church is asleep. You know, we've bought in to the lie that you know, well, separation of church and state, you can't, you can't have any influence, you can't talk about politics in the church, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we just go along with the flow, well, I guess they're right. No, that's not right. I mean, this could either be a disaster or the brink of a, of a, a, a we could be on the brink of a great movement back to God. Um, I don't know which one it is, but I hope it's not you're going over the cliff. 
We need to be praying for our country, especially during this time. And we can work toward that end. We can, we can be diligent to be involved. I mean, why have we as a nation, asked this question, turned away from the truth? Why do we see collapsing moral standards all around us? Why is that? Why are we so quickly to accept gay marriage, accept abortion, I mean, why, why, why is our nation just so quickly to affirm those things when God clearly says those things are wrong? I think the answer is, is clear. As a nation, we don't think we need God anymore. We're doing fine without him. You know, I, I was watching some of the reviews of 9-11, you know, just went through that. And I was watching some of the film and stuff, and I thought, wow, I remember afterwards, I mean, our, our nation was truly touched by evil. But it actually brought our nation together for good. Um, I mean, millions of people turned out to reconnect with their God, really. But as soon as that crisis disappeared so did the people <laughs> um, I mean for years they used to have you know we will not forget all that stuff and, and I think we kind of have forgotten what happened on that day sometimes you can talk to younger people today they don't even know what you're talking about when you say 9-11 you mean 911? it's like no they have no idea. You know, I think when we went through that time in our country, and I pray it doesn't happen again, because it didn't really help. I think we turned toward God as a nation. Remember the Democrats and Republicans holding hands, having prayer on the steps of the... I mean, it was amazing. They turned toward God. But they didn't turn to God. Big difference. Big difference. We turned in his direction, but we didn't repent of our sins as, even as a nation or as individuals. I mean, don't get me wrong, turning toward God is good. It's a, kind of a good first step, but it never lasts. We've all probably known people who turn toward God, right? And then something happens and they walk away. See, only turning to God can change a nation. And you know what? The, the fix we're in right now, the problems we have right now, we need and we have a big God to turn to. <laughs> um, so when we talk about strong faith, perverted justice, I mean... You're probably sensing the confusion times we live in. You're, you're either in those times or you're coming out of those times or you're about to go into those times where justice doesn't seem to be correct and, and you're just confused about everything that's going on. I'm hoping as we go through this series that we can understand that it's 
it's God we need to turn to. Um, three important insights here quickly. We only see part of the picture. At this point, Habakkuk only saw part of the picture. <laughs> he saw all the evil. He went to God and God said, I'm going to answer. But wait a minute, what are you going to do, God? See, when it comes to understanding what God is doing in the world, um, we're like little ants. We, we, we don't understand. You know what? We, we, we crawl across a certain part of his purpose or his plan, and, and we think that's, that's all the plan there is. No. Someone described it as an ant on a, on a Rembrandt, like a big painting. And you're just a little tiny ant. And you're, you're going along, and you see everything's brown around you. You're going, wow, this is kind of weird. And you're just on a little part of that painting. And as you, as you move, you see different colors. You experience different things. You move across that painting. And you come to the green, and you think, well, it's a little bit better now. It's green now. It's not so dark. This is, it's, it's pr- and then pretty soon the dark blue is splashily yellow, all this stuff. And as we journey on from one color to another, another, we never realize that God is actually really putting together a masterpiece painting of our life using all the the different things, all the different colors, all the different trials, all the different blessings, all the different tribulations in our life. And one day we're going to look back and we're going to realize, you know what, every color had its place. It's kind of like those paint-by-number things. You know, you start off and it's like, oh, this is white with some borders and numbers. How boring. Then you start painting and you're going, wow, this is kind of looking pretty cool, right? And when you're done, you're going, wow, that's amazing. Nothing's out of place. Nothing was wasted. Everything had a reason. Just as there's a time and a season for everything, remember, from Ecclesiastes, there's also a color for every stage of life's journey. And when the painting is finished, we're going to discover that we're part of his masterpiece from the very beginning. And all the hardship, all the trials, all the blessings are all going to be knit together in a beautiful quilt that will look back and go, wow, okay, now I get it. So we don't always see the whole picture. Secondly, God isn't limited to what we think he ought to do. I mean, this is very important that we understand this. God isn't limited to what we think he ought to do. See, we continually make the mistake. We look at a situation and we think that our plans and God's plans are the same plans. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that. I've, I've done that a lot in my life, only to find out they're not. That's not what God has planned. Um, somebody pretty wise said this, write your plans in pencil. And then give God the eraser. That's so true, right? I mean, here's another way to say it. If your God always does what you want, he's probably not the God of the Bible. Because God will be no man's servant, right? He's not a divine Santa Claus. He's God. Psalm 115.3 says he does whatever he pleases. So we only see part of the picture. God isn't limited to what we think he ought to do. And then thirdly, we need a bigger God. We need a bigger God. Uh, Habakkuk got his mind messed up, I think, because he thought that he knew what God should do. As a prophet of God, he thought, okay, well, I know what he's going to do. 
And in fact, chapter 1 shows us that he was wrong twice. First, when he thought God was ignoring Judah's sin, he cried out to God, said, don't you see this? How can you ignore this? And second, he was mistaken when he, he couldn't believe God would use the Babylonians to judge his own people. See, we need a God who's bigger than our puny little ideas. Amen? We need a God who, whose ways continually surprise us. I mean, think back over your life. How many times were you in a situation where you just thought, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation? There's no way. It's impossible. And yet, you look back on it now, and it's like, you know what? God was faithful. That was amazing. I remember that. How big is your God? We need a God whose ways will continually surprise us. And you know what? You better figure that out the answer before the hard times come. You don't want to be in the middle of hard times and have a puny God. <laughs> That's not a good, good place to be in. Here's one final thought about how to face confusing times. I think that it's... it's um, if you've ever seen this show, it's called Friday Night Lights. It's in Texas. It's basically about a high school football team. Uh, it's kind of a pretty good little show. But in the series, the coach has his players repeat three phrases. And he, he kind of does this routinely with them. He says, first of all, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. He, he just drills that into his players. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, here's really what we need. We need clear eyes, full heart, no fear. God is good. Clear eyes, full heart, no fear. God is good. I mean, that's, that's what we need to understand because he is on our side and he will bring us through these dire times just like he did through his plan with Habakkuk and Judah and even using people like the Babylonians. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and then we can talk a little bit. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And I know this is just an introduction to this book. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to fully understand as we journey with Habakkuk the next couple of weeks through this series, Strong Faith, Perverted Justice. And Lord, we look at our nation and we're in such dire times. And yet, Lord, I pray that the church would wake up, that we wouldn't just be lulled to sleep, that we wouldn't just figure, oh, well, I guess this means you're, all, you're coming back and let's just go home and be with the Lord. I pray that we would have it within our hearts to not just throw in the towel, but to go to you in prayer and to pray that you would begin to change hearts and minds in our country, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Father, we're not called to get involved in politics necessarily, but we are part of the politics of our nation. We are citizens. We do have certain roles that we can play. And Lord, I pray that through all this confusion and mayhem that's around us, Lord, that 
somehow that your light would pierce the darkness. That, Father, that you would use us as believers as we even walk out of here tonight. That you would put a burden on our heart to begin to pray daily for what our nation faces. And that righteousness would prevail. And, Father, that you would give us the boldness that we need as believers to share the gospel message with those who have yet to hear. Lord, help us not to be forced into submission by all the evil that we see around us. Lord, help us to use common sense. Help us to use information to draw hearts back to you. Lord, we pray that your work of the Holy Spirit would would do that through us, in us, as we're all gifted in different areas. We all have areas of influence that we're called to serve in. And so, Father, we just pray that we would be um, diligent, especially the next several months, to be in prayer for our nation, uh, to be active as citizens, and to do so in a loving and caring way. That we wouldn't be harsh and rude and obnoxious with people, but, Lord, that we would be kind and we would be loving and we would be gracious and forgiving. For that's who you are and we are called to be like you. And so we pray that you would uh, change hearts. And Lord, I thank you for your patience when we do come to you and we, we pellet you with questions, complaints. And Lord, you're patient with us. You don't turn us away. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your word in a way that we would grow more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is we need a big God and we have one. I just pray that we would um, come to you more often in prayer, asking you to work on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.